Welcome to Smart Construction, a podcast covering the latest trends and developments in construction contracts. This podcast series is for anyone in the construction industry who is interested in learning more about collaborative contracting as opposed to the traditional, more adversarial approach. I'm Alison Bearpark, construction partner at Ronan Daly German and your host today. In our last episode, we took a general look at intellectual property rights and building information modelling or BIM. In this episode, we're going to take a closer look at BIM in the UK. In a few moments, you'll hear a conversation between Fanola McCarthy, head of RDJ's construction practice, and Nicholas Gould, partner in Fenwick Elliott, a company specialising in construction and energy law in the UK and internationally. But before we hear from Fanola and Nicholas, let me give you a brief update of where BIM is at in the public sector in Ireland. In 2017, the government committed to establish requirements mandating the use of BIM on publicly funded projects, and a four-year roadmap was published at the end of 2017 to achieve this goal. As yet, there is no government mandate for the use of BIM here in Ireland. In June of this year, however, the Department of Public Enterprise and Reform reiterated its commitment to mandate BIM in the procurement of public projects. The department didn't give a timeline for the implementation of the actions outlined in the report, but there is pressure from within the construction industry for the government to take action. In the third and last national survey on BIM, published in 2017 by Enterprise Ireland, 85% of the organisations surveyed believe that Ireland should follow the UK's footsteps and mandate BIM. Those surveyed also stated that the lack of a public sector mandate was a key barrier to going forward with BIM in Ireland. UK government funded projects have been required to use BIM Level 2 since 2016 and there have since then been several advancements and lessons learned in the UK in relation to the use of BIM there. The UK's experience with BIM is hugely informative for us here in Ireland. So with that general outline, let's find out more about the UK experience and what lessons we can learn from Fanola and Nicholas. I'm delighted to welcome Nicholas Gould to today's podcast. Nicholas is a partner in Fenwick Elliott LLP, a firm specialising in construction and energy law in the UK and internationally. Nicholas practices in international dispute resolution and also advises contractors, employers and governments in the project's construction and engineering sectors. And he regularly advises clients on the use of BIM in their projects. Nicholas, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. I wonder if I could start by asking you a little bit about public sector projects. In the UK, where is government policy at currently regarding the use of BIM on publicly funded projects? So, um, thank you, Fanola. Um, well, I, I think in, in order to answer that, it's just interesting to take stock uh, as, to, as to where we are. And BIM has been with us for a little while now. Um, and when it first was introduced, I think the real idea of it was to try to um, somehow coordinate uh, all of the electronic data that was being produced on just a typical project. And if you were to go back, say, 20 or 30 years, um, drawings would be produced and printed in hard copy. They'd be posted around. People would mark them up and send them back. But of course, we've moved on now to the position where it's possible to produce an electronic drawing and send that around for electronic comment. And this was all well and good um, when people had the same software. But of course, it became a problem when people would have different software, questions about the license, can you open the documents, and so on. And then, of course, there are other documents, text documents, uh, PDF documents, diagrams, and so on, produced by the whole supply chain. 
and you end up with this real difficulty of marshalling all of those documents together and being able to actually open them and read them. And so BIM was born to try to introduce a protocol to, to get um, everyone on the same plate, as it were, in, in relation to looking at these, these documents. And um, uh, just coming up then to uh, four years ago, um, which was quite a landmark really, in 2016, the government uh, released the government construction strategy 2016 to 2020. So, of course, we're now into 2020. They set out a four-year plan. And one of the key objectives was to embed and increase the use of digital technology, including BIM, up to level two. Um, so at uh, that time, uh, this uh, government construction strategy was released. Um, it was um, a major kind of move towards the requirements for BIM level two. Uh, and, and I suppose, you know, as we get towards 2020, many have tried to meet that goal, but not necessarily everyone has done that. And let's just think about what BIM Level 2 is. Um, and if we were to look at the central funded government projects description, uh, it, it says that projects will use intelligent, data-rich objects in a managed 3D BIM environment, and all the parties working on the project should be able to combine their, their BIM and their design data and collaborate and share that information in a common data environment. This is the, the, the CDA, the common data environment. Um, and this sounds really complicated, doesn't it? But really what it means is that um, if we're all using the same electronic platforms and we can share and open and look at that data, integrate our information into it and then pass it on, then that is a major way forward. It's efficient. Also, if we keep it in a common data area, that's one area, so it's on a server somewhere that we can all access, it means that anyone on the project can open up that information uh, and, and look at it. So um, the idea really then is that each project has its electronic data, and this is where we should be at now for government um, projects. And of course, the next step uh, was BIM level three. And, and the aim there was to have projects that were fully collaborative using a single shared project view for all of the, the data. Um, and um, I think the reality is that as we move on a bit um, closer to, to, to today in this storyline, things have changed a, a little bit. What are the recent developments regarding BIM? So um, the government then reacting to the fact we were getting close to 2020 um, led to... Uh, a UK BIM framework. So this was released in October last year, October 2019, and it was created by the British Standards Institute, uh, the Centre for Digitally Built Britain, and also the UK BIM Alliance. So you now have a number of bodies coming together in order to produce this uh, framework, which is um, committed to a coordinated approach to creating and communicating an international wrapper for UK BIM. So first of all, then, it's, it's international. The idea is it's not just something we're doing in, in the UK. It needs to be uh, international. We try to encourage others to become involved so that we end up um, with a, a common system around the world. It would be rather unfortunate if we have one system in the UK that works quite well in five years and others have got different systems in other countries. That won't work very well for consultants or contractors and suppliers that supply across uh, these um different uh, borders as well. So the idea was to champion one set of guidance that could be used um, throughout. 
Um, and um, also then um, they produce from that an ISO standard, and this is the 19650 um, standard that, that's been uh, talked about recently in the construction press. And there's two parts to it. The, the first part relates to concepts and principles, and then the second part relates to the delivery um, phase of the, the assets itself. And I think actually it's probably also worth just pausing there and thinking about the RIBA. Many of us that are involved in, in construction projects will know about and understand the RIBA plan of work. And that was updated in 2020 um, with the idea of moving um, away from BIM a little bit, really, uh, and towards this idea, idea of a digitally built um, Britain. And that's what this um, uh, ISO 1650 standard is about. You'll see they've dropped the term BIM, and they're now calling it an information protocol. So this international standard clearly is moving towards overall digital tech for the construction industry, and that is really timely. Could you tell us one or two features of this standard? Yes, yes. Okay, so really then the idea about this, this standard is it's, it's, it's dropped the term BIM and, in, and instead is focusing on the information itself now. Um, and the requirement is um, to include this protocol in the relevant appointments. Uh, and this is in order to give some, some consistency. So the UK BIM framework has been produced as a, a document uh, really to try and help that. Um, and um, that, this, this sort of in, this information um, protocol, the delivery phase one, was only produced uh, in May this year. So off the back of last year's efforts, this document just came out in May. So it's worth having a look at, hot off the press, I suppose. Um, and this is the real starting point. And what you have to remember, though, is that um, it's not binding on any of us. It's just a protocol. And, and like any other protocol, if we're going to make use of it, it needs to be incorporated into the contract like any other contractual uh, term. And um, the information protocol does have a, a suggested incorporation clause. It's quite, quite short. It basically um, uh, sits as a boilerplate clause saying that the parties um, should be complying with their respective obligations uh, in relation to the protocol um, and enjoy the benefits granted to them under the protocol as well as any exclusions or limitations. Um, and then the last part is simply dealing with conflict. Um, and in, in the um, boilerplate clause, if there's a conflict, the parties can decide whether the terms of the appointment prevail or the protocol. But of course, what the, the, the BIM framework people are hoping is that uh, we would all select the information protocol because if you've got lots of appointments with different consultants on, on a project and the contractor, you really want the protocol to be the same throughout and to prevail. Um, so, but, you know, that, the idea really then is to have this consistent protocol that sits across all of the, the contracts uh, and um, provides a way for information sharing that's common and consistent. And by the sounds of it, the idea is then that it's quite easy to incorporate into a contract, which hopefully will make it much more favourable to use, and that's very interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about the terminology of 19650? Yes, thank you, yes. Um, yes, and, and you're right. I, I, I think that's pretty much the idea. If we can incorporate it and everyone starts using it, um, then we're working not just towards um, uh, a, a digitally built project but a, a digitally built environment throughout the country and hopefully then um, 
anyone working on the projects that are next to each other would be able to share common information. This is the idea, really, as you work towards a digitally built Britain. Uh, you should be able to examine a whole town, for example, and consider maintenance and, and drainage and all sorts of things. That's the real master plan. But just look, looking at terminology, uh, it's, it's rather lawyerly, I think, is the best way to put it. Um, uh, it's a little bit dry, the terminology. Um, so you have an appointor and an appointee, and the, the, the main three terms are an appointing party, a lead appointed party, and then appointed parties. And what they've actually done is that they've, they've taken um, the, the, the typical classification of the employer down to the contractor and then down to the subcontractor, but also recognizing that around the employer will be others. Um, so if you imagine the employer in the middle, uh, and, and around the employee, you have the consultants and you have the contractor. And then around the outside, you've got sub-consultants and, and, and uh, sub-suppliers and so on. Right in the core is your appointing party. So they're the appointing party. Um, and then the lead appointed party might well be the contractor. And then everybody else is an appointed party. And, and, and the, the, the way that they've then divided up the responsibilities is that the um, appointing party, being the owner or, or the principal of the project, uh, has the main function to ensure that the information management function is fulfilled. Uh, so they may have a representative to do that for them, or they could do it themselves, but they need to establish the information requirements, the protocols for information, the project milestones, the standards, and so on. Um, and then that flows down to everybody else with the lead appointed party, um, the contractor, most likely, um, producing the BIM execution plan, the part that we would recognize, uh, and summarizing the deliverables, uh, managing uh, the information, establishing the, the mobilization plans, producing a risk register, and, and, and so on. And then, then the appointed parties, those that are following um, this, but also, of course, producing a lot more detailed data that needs to feed into the overall um, uh, uh, information that's stored and gathered and put together in relation to that final project. And I think one thing just to, to, to notice there is that we've all been so used to having a BIM manager, that, that seems to have disappeared. Of course, the function of a, a BIM manager hasn't gone. They're most likely going to be in there probably uh, by, uh, appointed by the lead appointed party or if not by the, the appointing party employer. Uh, and their function is still required. Maybe the name will change from a BIM manager to an information protocol manager, uh, but I think the function is still very much there. So each, each of the parties has got a role to play in gathering the digital information on the project and ensuring that you have a, a, a smooth model, as it were, for the intellectual uh, and um, software uh, information that relates to the project. Clearly, a challenge for anyone involved in BIM is knowing the defined roles and responsibilities. And it sounds like that protocol has really set those out quite clearly. Where those roles are not so well defined, perhaps, or where the responsibilities are a bit muddled, that would probably be a minefield for litigation. Have you seen any court cases in the UK involving BIM, or have there been many? Well, yeah, this, this is quite new, so there isn't really um, very much. I mean, on the one hand, you do have all the usual traditional cases, I suppose, about design, because they're all still applicable, aren't they? If you think about um, a designer using reasonable skill and care, or, or whether the design and build contractor is supposed to be providing 
a product that's fit for its purpose. All that usual analysis applies in copyright and so on. But if we were to look at a case that specifically um, arises um, and in relation to BIM, then there's one case that touches on some of the issues that are very specific to BIM, and that's a case called Trans Engineering Limited against Mock McDonald Limited. It's a 2017 case, and uh, uh, it's reported in, in the High Court in the Technology Construction um, Court. Uh, uh, and people do discuss this in the context of BIM. I think maybe it's helpful just to look at um, what the case is about. Um, so um, the Ministry of Defence had employed Trent to uh, build a new £55 million power generation facility in the Falkland Islands. They, in turn, had engaged Mott McDonald to provide design consultancy services and prepare and implement um, BIM. Uh, and um, I think the original fee was about 400,000 paid in, in, in two installments of 200,000. And then the, there was a claim of 475,000 extra fees. Uh, and um, this uh, resulted in uh, a dispute. And um, just uh, looking at uh, what Mrs. Justice O'Farrell said in the case is interesting because she, she summarized what she'd heard about BIM and described it um, in this way. She said that... Um, the BIM system um, is building information modeling and it, and it comprises a software system which is intended to assist the design, preparation and integration of differing designs and different disciplines for the purposes of adequate and efficient planning and management of the design and construction process. So you know, what we were saying at the very beginning, bringing everything together on one platform so that the, the people trying to build it, manage it, maintain it, and use it can easily access the information that they need to access uh, about uh, the, the construction and the details and, and, and so on. Now, um, McDonald put all of their software into something called ProjectWise. So this is your CDE, your common data environment, I suppose, um, and all the information was available on, on there. Now, once they fell out about um, fees, Mott McDonald wouldn't let Trant get access to the documents. They said, pay up and we'll give you the documents and you can understand that. So Trant applied to court for an interim injunction. They said that they wanted um, Mott McDonald to provide access to all the design data so that Trant could carry on uh, building. And if it was going to take a year to resolve the dispute, uh, the project couldn't wait for a year. It was a £55 million project. The losses would be far too much. Um, uh, and um, damages wouldn't be an adequate remedy. So therefore, we need the injunction, hand over, hand over the documents. Um, uh, and um, just pausing there, you can see straight away, can't you, how if you haven't got access to the CDE, you're completely stuck. I mean, at least when there were hard copy documents in, in, in going back uh, many years, someone could print another set or they may have a spare set. But really, these days, we all rely on the most up-to-date electronic information. Um, and if you're getting access to it uh, with a password and perhaps a license, that can be taken away immediately. So there's a real challenge for the industry there. Um, so anyway, just going back to this case, um, the court uh, agreed, actually, with Trent that damages wouldn't be an adequate remedy, and therefore they needed to have access, so they granted access. But this was on the basis that Trant Tran was ordered to pay into court the disputed amount of 475000 So it is fact-specific, and I imagine the court may or may not decide to do that. But it just goes to show um, that um, uh, access to this information can be extremely project-critical. 
Uh, and if you fall out with parties, then you really need to think about uh, getting access to the document, who owns the copyright, who has access, where the money needs to be placed on an escrow account somewhere. And, and I think um, these issues are not really being that well thought through when, when you start projects up, because these issues could be addressed, I think, um, at the outset. Um, most people, though, typically on projects, don't think there'll be any disputes and therefore don't really turn their minds to them. We spoke earlier about public projects. What are you seeing in relation to private projects? Is it popular across the range of sectors involved in private development and private industry? And how is it developing in private projects? Yes, and that's interesting because, of course, all of this growth has come from the government and the government projects and and, and, uh, uh, demand, really, that uh, all government projects adhere to to BIM 1 and 2, and and, and now we're into the next phase. But I think for private projects, it depends on the size of the the project. So on larger projects, the use of BIM is is likely to be much more widespread than it certainly is. But that's because of the the nature of the employers and the high tier of the contractors that are involved. They've already got used to a centralised storage system. So the moment you decide to centrally store all of your information, and then you, you're just entering the BIM world. You're, you, you can't avoid it. Um, and if you're doing it with government uh, on government projects, will you just take that to your private projects? It does make life a lot, a lot easier. But for smaller projects, it, 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 it's not quite the same. Um, there are various impediments, and, and those can include um, lack of awareness by um, uh, the parties in the in the uh, construction process. So. You know, smaller developer and other, uh, developers and others may not really even be aware of this. And even if it's explained to them, then um, you have this perception that it's not really necessary for a smaller project. And I suppose finally, concerns over cost. You know, if I've got a smaller project, this is not something I've done before. Why should I do this? Surely it's going to be an additional cost. So there's a bit of a mindset there um, that's required in order to get uh, these private projects using it. Uh, and I think it's going to take uh, some some time. And probably, um, I imagine that it will just slowly filter down um, to the smaller players at some point in the future. That's interesting. In the Irish experience, we're seeing BIM used quite extensively in the tech industry and the pharmaceutical sector. But clearly, these are large, high-value projects as opposed to the lower-value private development-type projects As regards a BIM-enabled project, Nicholas, would you be in a position to share your experience of a hands-on project that you've been involved in or discuss an example? Um, Yes, um, I suppose three three things spring spring to mind. First of all, seeing it go into contracts uh, early on um, and um, the process sort of beginning, you you know, you you have a sense that, that people are serious taking this up and getting involved in this and, and, and doing it and so on. But only insofar as they need for the day-to-day construction. And I think that brings me on to, to an example um, where um, uh, it was a process engineering plant in the UK and they everything had been designed using BIM and the information had been shared and stored and, and, and so on. And then the project became late. Of this classic problem of some change occurred, um, the, uh, the structure was increased, all of the, the piping in the building needed to be uh, dropping down around beams, 
requiring lots of change. And, and of course, the BIM model handled all of this at the time very easily. Um, but the project was then around 12 months late, and, and uh, the dispute about who paid for the delays and, and so on couldn't be resolved. And when we started to look at it, we thought the obvious place to go was the BIM model to, to trace through the information changes and, and look at the clashes. And so you could do a clash identification and see uh, where all these pipes were going to uh, um, collide with the beams and therefore needed to be redesigned. And what you could really trace was um, a, a major change in the structure, then not much happening for a while until they were going to site and then the clash happened on site. That's a major problem because it should have been identified months before. And then, of course, everyone goes back to the BIM model at that point and, and starts changing the pipework, um, and that then led to the delay. So in many respects, um, uh, the, the BIM modeling and the clash identification was very successfully used in the disputes phase to identify who hadn't picked it up and who hadn't dealt with it. And you could see the number of days delay, which was many months before someone twigged and realized they needed to deal with this. So it was very helpful for, for us to identify who was liable, um, which was quite nice, I suppose. But unfortunately, because what, what, what the, the parties were supposed to do was identify this at the time and deal with it. And, and the model worked. You, you know, they could have done it, but they just, they just didn't really think about using it in that way, which is unfortunate. So I think there's still a lot of learning to, to, to take place. Um, you know, the, these tools are there. Some of them are quite sophisticated, but uh, I, I don't think they're necessarily being used. Um, and then the last one, a major international contractor, uh, not in this country, but in, in, in Germany, uh, last year I was in their office and they showed me a, a BIM system that they were using quite extensively on every project, uh, mainly working on the, this was the, the, the large project side of the division. Um, and um, they found it saved time and money to, to, to design everything out, uh, put a headset on and walk through the construction and, and actually try to look at it and, and change, you could change aspects of it live, you could change the colors of things live. And this was quite impressive. And one of the projects they were working on had some columns that were wasted in the middle. In other words, they, they started out wide and as they went up, they slowly wasted to the middle uh, where they were narrow and then, and then came back out like an apple core, I suppose, once you've, you've eaten it. Um, uh, and these were rather large concrete um, columns. Uh, and the BIM model could show you that the reinforcement was so gathered at the center that you couldn't get the concrete around it. And this was something that was spotted by uh, them reviewing the designs um, and examining the three-dimensional model in the way that they could look through it. And so they were able to discuss this with the design team and the client before they even went on to site. So that was a great example of how it, it led to a redesign and avoided uh, a real problem um, on site when they went to pour the concrete. That's really interesting. So lots of different uses or benefits coming out of the use of BIM. And as you say, items and circumstances that we haven't actually had to consider yet are perhaps added benefits. So where do you think BIM is headed? Clearly with the new framework, there will be a big step forward, I imagine. Are there any other circumstances or progress plans that you see coming up next? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The... Um, the government's um, uh, construction strategy document, this, this, this GCF and the other documents that have come from it, are going to be the central focus now for a while for the government and maybe pushing into those bigger projects and the private sector 
um, too. Um, but, and, but I think just standing back from all of that, <clears throat> this idea of BIM and the use of BIM and information protocols is going to increase. Um, uh, and um, although BIM has been the keyword for many years, I think we're going to start looking beyond BIM. And if you look at uh, the RIBA plan of work as well, um, you see terminology like um, uh, BIM with AI so that the AI can, can spot issues that, 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 that we might be missing as the design developments, as the design develops. The Internet of Things, there's the digital twins also. Um, this is the idea that your physical building has a digital twin so that you can look at, manipulate, consider how you would manage that digital twin before you spend any money physically going to the building itself. And also off-site manufacturing. Um, if you think about off-site manufacturing, which is it's working in some instances, but still has a long way to go. Um, if you have a fully integrated model that allows you to construct a lot off-site and bring it to site and then manage it, um, these are all good things, aren't they? It's really, really helpful. And it's much cheaper to sit in an office and examine an electronic model and then carefully work through various scenarios before you physically do any work. So that's why I think certainly um, it, it's still got some way to go. Uh, but it's going to continue on the on the uh, increase, and no doubt we'll see more initiatives from um, this triumvirate. So it's actually being joined by more now, more than just the British Standards and 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 the Centre for Digitally Built Britain and the UK Bill of Rights. Others are becoming involved. I think the RICS joined. Some of the other institutions are joining. So I think we're going to have quite a big task force slowly pushing this forward, um, and hopefully then we will have maybe true consistency, at least in relation to how the design comes together and, 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 and it's managed. Um, I suppose the one last point just to think about is, you know, if you're in a design team and you are working away at the, the, the precise details with the contractor and others on this model that you're sharing, um, maybe we're all going to end up in a position where we, we, we just find ourselves liable for fitness for purpose. Because... Um, you know, if everyone is involved in slight improvements in that in that design, and the contractor is involved um, with you as designers, and the final model is then constructed, surely, just naturally, uh, this final product should be completely fit for its purpose um, by by design or by accident. And I think it will be harder in the future uh, to to maintain this uh, lower level of, of resource skill and care, which is going to raise other problems and issues about. Um, probably insurance and so on in the future but that aside I think it's going to keep moving forward and it's certainly a very good thing. It's very exciting so many developments and clearly lots of new ideas that's fantastic Nicholas just to wrap up are there any lessons you think that Ireland could take from the UK's experience at this stage? Well I, I, I mean one the UK seems to be a bit ahead in all of this and one great thing about, about looking to see what the UK is doing is not to make the same mistakes isn't it that's that's just a great opportunity. And so have a look at, at Trant, uh, the Trant case, because um, there should really be a, a way in the protocol for everyone to maintain the momentum of the project when there are disputes, but still preserving properly people's rights to um, uh, their design and potentially uh, the money flow and so on. And, uh, and I think that you know hasn't been dealt with adequately. The other thing really is is to look at the latest um, protocol. And if you decide you'd like to use it, make sure it goes in everybody's appointment and the building contract, um, and it's consistent. And that will help also a, a lot. 
They are two great suggestions and two great takeaways, and that's a very good starting point from the Irish perspective, and probably a good ending point for our conversation today. So thank you, Nicholas. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Rhoda. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Smart Construction, keeping you informed of updates in the construction industry. The information provided in this episode was correct at the time of recording. However, we recommend consulting your regular or DJ advisor to ensure no changes have occurred since then. Alternatively, you can contact us via our website, ordj.ie. We're here to help. Thank you.